Welcome to the Beef Brunch Educational Series podcast, bringing you information on cattle production and management in Louisiana and surrounding states. Good morning, everyone. Thank you all for joining this morning's Beef Brunch Educational Series webinar. I'm Ashley Edwards, and I'll be hosting for you today. Um, Hopefully, it'll be nice and quiet, at least while I speak. Uh, We have voting going on here at our office, so if there's any background noise, that's what that's coming from. Our speaker for this morning is Bobby Bingham. Most of you may know Bobby. He serves as our extension agent in Livingston Parish, as well as several surrounding parishes. Today, he's going to be discussing ryegrass allotment and grazing and then supplementation through the winter months. I'd like to cover just a few housekeeping notes before I turn it over to him. If you're joining us on the Teams app or link, you can put your questions into the Q&A box at any time. If you have called in, you can text questions to me. My number is 512-818-5476. So again, if you've called in or even if you're watching and you'd rather text the question to me, that number is 512-818-5476. For the sake of time, we will wait and answer questions uh, at the end of his presentation. Bobby, thank you again for joining us this morning. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you and you can begin whenever you're ready. I appreciate it, Dr. Edwards, and I appreciate the opportunity to get on uh, my, my first time presenting here in the Brief Run series, and, and I've watched several of them in the past, so I always find them to be pretty informative and, and hope I do uh, the same thing as well. We were batting around ideas about what to kind of cover a, a couple of weeks or a few months ago between me and Dr. Edwards. Uh, we thought you know, talking about uh, talking about you know grazing in the allotment of ryegrass would be pretty timely. And uh, as we get here, we're uh, we're probably a little bit early even thinking about this. In most cases, uh, this time of year, we'd we'd be uh, looking at the grass and just chomping at the bit to to figure out when we're going to have the opportunity to get on. Uh, I know here in, in our portion of the southeast part of the state, uh, we've been very, very, very dry. Uh, when the spigot shut off in, in September, uh, we we haven't had a whole lot of measurable rainfall since. So those guys that, uh, you know, we had several that go ahead and plow early in, in September and be planted are not that much further along than those guys that have sod seeded along the way because we just haven't had the moisture to get that stuff up and germinated and going. Um, and a week ago Saturday, we had enough uh, enough rain to kind of knock the dust down. And then this past Saturday, we were pretty fortunate and, and depending on where you at, caught a caught an inch plus. So in my drive into work, I'm, I'm in a pretty populated area, so I don't see a whole lot of fields, but uh, did notice a, a couple of them on my drive in that, that had a nice green sheen across them. So moisture definitely helped and it looks like we're going to get up and, and hopefully get rolling here before too long. So we start thinking about ryegrass and, and, and just start need to start thinking about a realistic expectation. Uh, you know, in a normal year, uh, you know, you, you, everybody is just worried about trying to be on at Thanksgiving. And I think that's more or less just want to be the first one at the coffee shop to say that they've been able to turn on grass. But having a realistic expectation of what our ryegrass is going to do is, is probably more beneficial to us. And and there's a couple of these charts out there. Um, you've probably seen one, I know, in, in Dr. Skagley's uh, presentation last year that shows a little bit different bump. Uh, kind of in that November, December, January range in terms of ryegrass. This one's kind of pulled maybe just a little bit more for the southeast. But I think this is an extremely good representation of probably what we can expect out of our ryegrass production come this year. We're uh, Since we're just getting germinated in our part and, and speaking with some counterparts across the state, it, it sounds like moisture has been a, 
a pretty big concern for them as well. So uh, where we normally try to think about being on, you know, that Thanksgiving time frame on, on the very, very early years, very good years, uh, we're going to be way late in, in probably December. Uh, and so this is a good representation of, of per where we need, you know, expect to be in terms of our ryegrass production. You know, one of the things we, we talk about, uh, you know, this is a cool season grass. Uh, we don't necessarily call it cold season grass. It doesn't love the cold, uh, but it does love the cool. So once we kind of get through those winter months and as we get towards that tail end of February, you'll see where our big spike is going into that early spring and, and carrying on into kind of late spring and in some years even into late summer. So having that realistic expectation of, of, of when we want to graze or, or what our, you know, how much forage we have out there. Um, just know that we're going to be better off as we the calendar turns into next year than we are in any typical year through uh, through our late early winter and late winter months. Uh, so just thinking about when when some of the peak production would be, you know that that stuff like we mentioned just a second ago is is a cool season. It, it still likes those moderate temperatures where it's going to have peak growth. So as we get into those mid 60s, uh, that's where it's really going to take off and, and be extremely productive. When we start to get into those cold events and that, uh, you know, start dropping down into those low 50s, our growth is going to slow down considerably. And then as we get those low uh, low 40s and into the upper 30s, it's virtually going to be nothing at that point. So uh, as we get into these, some of these cold events and cold nights, um, just not going to have as, as much production there. And so that gets into be a, a management deal that we'll talk about just in terms of, of some of those grazing strategies. Uh, one thing to kind of keep in mind, is when we get actually can turn out on that we need to have enough plant material uh, for for a couple of reasons we, we need to have enough height that makes it easier on managing on us uh, and the more that we leave in in terms of that first grazing path uh, the better that plant is going to be able to recuperate uh, so if we can wait uh, six to eight inches in, in terms of height and if you're Want to be a little less intense on on the management and not have to monitor it as much. You know, tend to go towards that that eight to ten inches, uh, just to give yourself a little bit more leeway. Uh, we'll, you know, there's numbers to back these things up and a lot of a lot of data, and we'll throw the science at you. But there's just as much of an art to this deal uh, to get the the appropriate grazing that, that you want out of it. So, uh, you know, if you want to manage a whole lot, uh, you can go in there once a little bit earlier. If if you don't want to manage as month much, just let it grow a little bit longer, and you, you don't have to worry quite as much. But as we graze that thing, particularly in the early part of the season, we want to leave some of that plant material there. So we want to leave at least three inches of that plant height. Um, and really, if we could leave half of whatever we're grazing down, we'd be in pretty good shape. Um, the lower we graze that, the more it's going to take for that to, to kind of get rebuilt back up and, and use a bunch of its energy stores to kind of get back growing. And it's just good. You know, we've taken its its leaf mass off. We've taken some of the, the, the photosynthesis capability off. So uh, the more we leave on, typically the better off we're going to be. Uh, so in terms of figuring your stocking rate, um, you know, there, there's a lot of data out there and I just happened to pull pull this one and, and uh, you know, it's going to vary a little bit from year to year. It's going to vary on what part of the state you're in or what part of the southeast you're in, but uh, just kind of a general rule of thumb if you want to, you know, kind of a lot early in, in the in the grazing period, somewhere between 625 and 750 uh, pounds of body weight per acre. Uh, and and I'll, I'll typically refer to a lot of stuff as, as body weight as opposed to, to animal unit. Uh, you can kind of do the math. Uh, everybody's cows are going to be a little bit different. You can kind of divvy up how you need to, to come up with your forage allotment. But, uh, you know, early in that season, it's not going to be the most productive. So we can't push it and just think we can throw a, a cow out there to, to 
three quarters of an acre and that thing's going to work out. Uh, going to have to kind of monitor a little bit. Once we get into that good productive season, you know, it's a pretty realistic expectation that we could turn a cow loose on that and not worry about her. Uh, so we would expect an acre to support 1,250 to, to 1,850 pounds of body weight. So in those good years when, when everything's growing good and fertilizer is super cheap and you can take care of all those things and, and you could push it, uh, there'd be some, some uh, extra there at the end that you could potentially go on and, and pull off this hay, uh, which was always a good opportunity because uh, we plant this stuff for a reason. It's extremely nutritious. Um, and in most cases, if we can time up when our cows are calving, uh, we can we can hit some high nutritional demands with some extremely nutritional forage out there. Uh, in the same term, uh, the same terms makes extremely good hay. Uh, I'll talk a lot about bahia um, when we start talking about supplementation and matching that to hay needs because that's what we primarily have here in my part of the world. But uh, we compare it back to bahia or Bermuda, certainly a, a very good, uh, very good hay. So just in terms of thinking about how we want to graze this thing, uh, you know, comes down to, to how much management you want to put in. Um, so we will talk, um, you know, you, you hear a lot of talks and talk about rotation just in terms of maximizing what the capabilities of our pastures are. Uh, and it's extremely good practice, but it does require more infrastructure and it does require more time. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, you know, we can throw the science at it. It also takes a little bit of a, uh, a, a little bit of repetition and just feeling uh, you know comfortable enough with it to, to know when the grass is going to go backwards on you, you got to get pulled off and, and, and have some flexibility to just make some changes within whatever rotational program you're going to do so you know it's going to require some permanent or some electric fence um, you know if you're comfortable with that electric fence deal that's a, a pretty good cost effective way to kind of divide these pastures up um, you know I've, I've had several producers that rely pretty pretty heavily on electric fence and, and kind of one of the things that stuck with me, they said, you know, if we keep that uh, that poly wire stretched in that same spot, you know, for a couple of years, well, that might be time to go ahead and put a permanent fence right there because it seems to work out in a pretty good spot. So um, you can start off with electric fence and maybe uh, eventually as as money becomes available, uh, can move that and, and put in some permanent fences there, permanent fences there because it will cost a little bit more money. So just going to divide this, uh, you know, divide your property up uh, in multiple pastures. Uh, some people are going to refer to them as paddocks. Um, and if you want to get really intense, and, and I know some guys that do this, uh, they're only going to go a lot, one or two days worth of forage, and then they're going to rotate to a different spot. That's pretty intense, uh, and you've got to have the time uh, to be able to, able to do that. You know, in a lot of cases, if we can allot seven to ten days worth, we'd be in pretty good shape. Uh, the thing to keep in mind, like we talked about earlier in, in terms of leaving enough plant height, we need to, to pull off of that pasture for at least three to four weeks and try to give that thing plenty of rest so it has time to regenerate and get good growth before we get uh, get turned back on it. The big thing with rotational grazing is, is we're controlling what they're, what they're taking. We're giving them a lot amount of space, a lot of amount of space, and uh, we're turning them in and saying, this is what you got for this many days. And so they're gonna be required to go out and really grace for that. They can't just kind of cherry pick a, a few spots and then go back in and lay up. You know, they're going to have to to work that in, that entire allotment of land that, that we've got for them, however big that that particular uh, piece, uh, portion of the pasture may be. And one thing that, that, that may be a limiting factor for a lot of places or a lot of people is just going to be water placement. You know, when, when you get on a place, whether it's something you purchased or, or something you lease, 
you know, it's not divided up perfectly about where the ponds are at or where you got a well or how much uh, water line you got running from different wells that you can set some uh, set some troughs up. So uh, it gets to be extremely critical in trying to design those those spaces. This is just kind of a, a very, very crude and rudimentary little drawing there. So, uh, but kind of the, if you wanted to, to punch it in a formula to figure out how you want to divide your, your space up, you can do uh, the days of rest divided by the days of grazing plus one and come up with your number of paddocks. Uh, so in this scenario here, I've got six paddocks. So I'm saying that we're going to have 25 days of, of rest or 25 days, yeah, 25 days of rest, five days of grazing, uh, and then we've got one extra paddock, so that ends up with uh, with six total paddocks. And, and you know, just to do easy math, if we wanted to do and just divide our, our pastures up in, in four different quadrants, uh, four different paddocks there, uh, we could graze those things for a week. Um, we could have 21 days of rest, and so that comes up where we would get that number of four paddocks that we'd need for, for that particular situation. Uh, this is a guy up in the Felicianas. This guy is exclusive in terms of uh, his electric fencing, but uh, you can see he's got a big water trough set up right here in the middle. Uh, this is a, this is summer pastures, so, and so he'll he'll do some stockpiling and let this stuff grow up. And that's where we a little little paddock there to the left. That's what that is. That's some of the stockpiled stuff he's going to let grow up during the summer. Uh, if you can kind of see on that screen, there's a there's a strand of poly wire that's running quite down the middle, and that's the lane that's running up to this trough. So he doesn't have a tremendous amount of water all over this place. There's a pond off to the to the right of that picture that you can't see uh, that, that some of those pastures uh, on the, the paddocks on the backside get access to. But kind of here through the middle of this place, everything's kind of run through that lane up, up to that particular water trough. So kind of a good idea about you know how he utilizes his uh, his electric fence there uh, just to, to run those cattle up and have access to water no matter what paddock and that they get those uh, cattle put into. You know, that's just a, uh, once again, uh, same same property there. You can see uh, he's got high tensile there, uh, there on the front of that picture and just a little strand of poly. Um, you know, get your cattle trained. Uh, once they're trained, that little single strand of poly wire will, will do a good job. Uh, if they're not, you, pretty, you need to work on training them first before we, if we're going to utilize that electric fence. But uh, probably need to two strand that there. And as they get used to it, maybe you can uh, maybe you can cheat a little bit and just go to that that uh, that single strand. So kind of switching gears and, and, and dropping down in terms of what our labor requirements might be. Um, just talk a little bit about limit grazing. And this is probably what more people are, are, are willing to do. Uh, there's not near as much of a time commitment in terms of moving uh, moving those cattle around or setting up the, uh, setting up the, the fences uh, and getting that rotation in. Um, and so we're just not gonna have the fencing and we're not gonna have quite as much of a forage allotment um, in, in so the cattle can be more selective than they are in that rotational or of a more intense uh, grazing pattern, uh, but they're going to be, we're still not going to give them full access like we would to in a continuous situation like we'll talk about in a little bit. And so it comes down to if we're going to limit them, what's the appropriate amount of time that, that to limit them? Uh, and, and the rule book will tell you kind of that two to three hours, or we could do it four hours every other day. Uh, the reason that two to three hours deal is, is out there is that that's the, kind of the amount of time cattle are going to graze. They're going to graze multiple times a day uh, and they're typically going to do it, you know, in that, that two hour sort of allotment. They're going to kind of get their fill at that particular grazing portion of their day and they're going to go lay down. So uh, if we're pulling them off, off after two hours, that doesn't give them a, a chance to go lay down and kind of kind of mess up whatever field are out there. Uh, 
who knows what weather is going to be if it turns off wet and nasty you know we've, we've got them out and they can lay around and, and make a bit of a mess so if we get them with them pulled off we can minimize the amount of impact we're doing on that particular pasture once again you know a, a little bit of the of the art to go along with the science we certainly realize that uh, you know everything we throw at you in, in terms of what some of the data will tell you or some of the research studies will tell you that simply does not fit everybody's schedule um, and so you you have to make this deal work around you i've got uh, several guys that, that i've had the opportunity to work with you know uh, some of those may uh, you know we, we have a lot of uh, plants along the river and, and while we're kind of a bedroom community and don't have those here located in the parish i'm in a lot of those guys are going to drive down there and work so they're they're on shift work and their schedule is going to vary but uh you know they might be able to implement a, a day on day off strategy um, so we, we put them on and put them on in the morning one morning and then come back the following morning and kick them off so we got 24 on 24 off you know it's not perfect in terms of a, a true limiting uh, but we're at least pulling those off uh, for a day and, and not letting them uh, just take what they can have out there in a continuous situation it lets us monitor things uh, in terms of, of where our grass is going to be if we don't get moisture it's going to struggle uh, and so maybe it, it gets to a portion uh, you know, portion of time where we just got to pull completely off for a little bit you know this sort of scenario lends itself very well to doing that also if we want to think about supplementation and i realize uh fertilizer prices are through the roof um and so ryegrass right now is a, is a very expensive expensive come on, or, uh, thing to do um you know the numbers i put at uh, I'll, I'll pull numbers just to kind of see what it's going to cost to plan on a yearly basis early in september so my numbers are pulling from that um, and uh, so what, what i was figuring on and i keep the same fertilizer rate just in terms of of having some comparison from year to year our soil is, is kind of poor so saying a 50 60 60 on the front end in terms of np and k and then coming back and, and hitting it with another 65 50 to 65 pounds of nitrogen you know my number came in at somewhere around like 270 bucks on a on a normal year uh, if we could get you know three tons of dry matter production that still drops that down to less than $90 a ton of actual dry matter, which is certainly cheaper than, than any of the commodities we can out, get out there. So if we just wanted to look at ryegrass in terms of just a straight supplement and not plant as many acres and still fertilize at that rate, you could you could implement this sort of limit grazing strategy and turn them on, let them graze for a couple hours and kick them off uh, and just treat that ryegrass as nothing but a supplement because we're not going to have as much planted as we would in, in a normal grazing year. So uh, certainly something to think about, uh, you know, particularly as uh, the pocketbook needs to make some decisions on as it relates to fertilizer. If you can't push it as, as hard uh, with with your nitrogen, uh, maybe you just have to start limiting it a little bit more and, and can implement something along these lines. And so uh, just a little crude draw on there on, on kicking them on and, and pulling them off into a, a low quality pasture where we'd, uh, we'd put them on hay and just give them access uh, for, for a little time period. And this applies particularly early in, in that grazing season. So switching gears to uh, to what's going to be the, the least amount of uh, labor involved, the least amount of infrastructure, but also uh, it's going to be the least amount of control of what we have out there in terms of our forage supply. Um, you know, we, we just turn them loose and let, let them have it at this point. So, you know, it's hard to try to vary the stocking rate in this deal because we're just situated with what we have. So we, we turn them loose and so they could get it grazed down and then we got to pull off. We get it grazed down too much. Maybe it doesn't respond and then, then we lose where we're at in terms of uh, 
our later production comes springtime. Uh, but still, you know, depending on, on how you need to do things, it may be the option that you're going to do. Uh, you know, if this is, this is a strategy, uh, encourage everybody to find them a good fe hay feeding location around the perimeter of that field, or if you've got some really bad spots in that field that, you know, get on top of a hill that uh, that just doesn't grow a whole lot of grass, you want to tromp a little organic matter in, uh, set those up as your, your hay feeding uh, areas. Cattle are naturally going to be drawn to hay, uh, so they're going to pull themselves off and kind of congregate around, them, uh, around those bales. So, uh, while you don't have a place to kick them off to a, a different pasture in some scenarios, uh, you know, if you've got a good hay feeding area, they'll kind of pull that and at least minimize some of them, the amount of time they're spending out, spending out on the rest of the field. Uh, still, in, 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 a, in an ideal world, you'd have a, a pasture sitting next to it where you can pull those off, you know, depending on weather, is, is depending on what our production is going to be in a lot of cases. So if we grass starts getting pretty short, kind of defer to that other pasture and just feed a little bit of hay and supplement them along the way until we can get that grass a chance to respond and get back growing good. So there's a, there's several of these out there and depending on what topic or who the speaker has been, this is just one I pulled. Uh, all of them are going to show the same thing and the continuous sort of scenario, the, the more head that we're putting per acre, uh, the less production that we're going to get out of it and that rotational uh, situation where we're managing the, the forage uh, at a little bit better clip, uh, we're able to, to put more head out there without seeing a significant drop off in the overall production. And that's just what both of those uh, those graphs kind of represent there. So another strategy, um, you know, if, if you don't have time to do the limited deal, um, you're, you're in more kind of a continuous sort of situation, uh, but you have that adjacent pasture where you can run your, your non-calf uh, cows that haven't calved yet and, and those cows that, that have calved, uh, you might be able to do kind of a variable stocking rate and, and have several guys that, that utilize this and it works well for them. Uh, so they're they're not going to put anything on ryegrass until they've calved. So they've, they've got to, uh, you know, just just um, either some stockpiled or a hay pasture that they're going to feed in. Uh, they're going to let those cows calve out. Um, and then once they calf, you know, a couple of times a week or maybe once a week, put that group together. You are going to have to work those cows and, and, you know, to be able to get them separated. So you may have to, to run them through the working pen. So there, there's some labor associated with that, uh, but you're not going to be moving them quite as much as what you would be in a, in a limited or a rotational grazing situation. Uh, just uh, if you're going to implement something like this, just one thing to keep in mind uh, on turning those cows out on washed grass. Uh, grass technique could be be an issue, so you just want to keep a, a close monitor on them. Um, you know, keep them with a full hay belly and, and plenty of access to hay, even though we're turning them on the grass so they uh, they don't get over consumed and maybe we're running some some mineral imbalances and some problems there. So just a few considerations to kind of think about, um, you know, one one thing, uh, you know, I've, I've been asked this question, a, you know, a couple of times throughout the years is, is when when's the ideal time to calve? Well, the ideal time to calve and, and, and realistically is when we have extremely good nutrition out there for them. So the a cow's greatest nutritional requirement is going to be 60 days after she's calving. And so that's why we typically see a lot of spring calvers in this state. Uh, that kind of corresponds with the fact that, that we have a, a pretty good opportunity to plant those cool season grasses and plant some extremely nutritious stuff and, and get good run out of that about the time where the cow's greatest nutritional demand is. So one thing to kind of consider is, is outside of those, um, you know, when, when our, our max production would be in terms of our ryegrass, the further outside of that we get, the more we need to think about how we're going to supplement those things because we're going to need to meet those nutritional demands. And, and that kind of goes into uh, 
what we'll talk about in terms of our uh, in terms of our supplementation of matching that with hay quality. So, in our part of the world, we'll generally kind of a lot of you know or plan an acre of cows. Some will, will put it down to three quarters of an acre. Um, just know that we're going to be short on grass on the front end of that thing, and that's that's not a problem. Um, it's just just how we're going to be in terms of that production uh, once we get to uh, in, into that good growth cycle. Once we come to late winter, early spring. We're going to end up where we've got plenty of grass and in some cases may have more. Depending on where you're at, you, you may want to get ryegrass played out a little bit earlier and you can select some varieties that, that are going to play out earlier. Like I said, in my part of the world, we're planting bahia. My guys would love for that stuff to last as long as possible. Uh, just so they, they know we're getting good nutrition out of the ryegrass, so they're not too worried if it if it runs uh, getting the, the bahia coming back just a little bit behind. But in your scenario, if you're a little bit further south and, and you got good Bermuda that comes in behind it, uh, you may uh, you may want to plant a variety that plays out earlier just so that uh, you get good spring growth on your perennial grass that's coming back. And as always, if if Mother Nature allows, and I guess if uh, if the pocketbook will allow you to to put some extra nitrogen on it. Uh, we should have plenty of grass towards the end so you could fence off a portion um, and uh, have the opportunity to make some hay. I guess one of the big limiting factors on, on trying to make the ryegrass hay is that falls into spring and early summer. Those are awfully rainy periods for us, but with the number of bale wrappers that are out there now, uh, a lot of guys have, have shifted to making some ryegrass baleage and, and being able to utilize that um, uh, until they can get on ryegrass for for those cows that have calved or late gestation and that works out extremely extremely well uh, we can make a pretty nutritious product at that particular point too so just thinking about uh you know shifting gears on on winter supplementation you know we, we've uh, many of you have been feeding hay and probably been feeding hay for a good uh, portion of time already uh, just because it got dry and we didn't get any regrowth after we pulled hay off our fields um, and then uh, looks like we could we could get it into a little bit of an extended hay feeding season if we don't get some moisture. Um, but but even the moisture we got, like in my part of the world, I said we we just got some measurable rain Saturday, so we're still a good 60 to 90 days out, and so it, it's going to extend late into December uh, into early January before a lot of guys are going to be able to get on and start to start grazing that ryegrass. So we've got an extended hay feeding period here. Um, which you know is is not a horrible deal depending on the, the quality of the hay you have. It was dry in the spring, uh, so there wasn't a whole lot uh, cut in our part of the world. Then it turned off rainy, and then uh, that that grass got extremely mature for us. Uh, and so most of those guys were just were going in in September. So we're going to be on the on the low end of, of what good quality of hay would be. Uh, we may be fair or marginal at best in, in a lot of different scenarios. So supplementation is something that we we probably all need to think about just because it wasn't incredibly good, it wasn't an incredibly good year to cut hay and make good quality hay. So the big thing and just kind of a take home point uh, is is I would encourage you just like we tell you to, to soil test, I'd tell you to go ahead and test your hay. That's extremely valuable information and that's not a super expensive process, 15 to $20 uh, if you're going to run an NRR, NRR test on them. If you're going to do the wet chemistry, those, those are going to be run a little bit more expensive. But in terms of what we're going to utilize, those numbers for we're just looking for some crude numbers and so that NRR is going to be certainly an accurate uh, deal that, that can give us those numbers and, and the big thing that, that I like to preach is, is let the pencil uh, help make supplement decisions. Our input costs are through the roof uh, but our calf prices are, are still 
very good right now too. So if we can control our cost as much as possible, there's still some money to be made. And so that's where that pencil becomes extremely heavy on, on running some numbers and trying to figure out what some lease cost options are uh, to help make it profitable while we're in this cycle where the cap prices should be good for a couple of years. So when you talk about testing hay, and generally most people that, that, that I go out and pull samples for, that their big concern is what their protein level is. And that is very, very important. It's certainly a big deal. Uh, but my counter to that is, well, what, why are you not concerned about your energy? Uh, and in terms of, of what we're gonna do in terms of our bahia production, when it gets, when it gets mature, uh, the digestibility is going to go down to that and our, our TDN is going to go down. So we'll talk in terms of, of TDN, that's total digestible nutrients, um, and then kind of the some of the factors that go into that would be the ADF and, and the NDF. Uh, so that NDF is a neutral detergent fiber. Uh, that's going to, you know, impact the intake of that that particular forage or, or that hay and so just associate ndf uh, just think about that n uh, correlating with intake is how i remember it and then we've got adf which is going to determine what our digestibility is and that's acid detergent fiber so as as those numbers go up um, our digestibility is going to go down, our intake is going to go down, and our energy values are going to go down with that too. And so that's why I try to preach to, to my guys, we need to pay attention to that energy value just as much as we're paying attention to that protein. So got some, some numbers here. So uh, the Southeast Station here in Franklinton, or just down the road from us, used to have uh, the Forge Lab was, was there located on that station. Uh, it's now located on campus, but uh, pulled from some of their numbers. And I think that data set was from like 2011 to 2016, somewhere in there, but uh, just kind of a six-year average of what it was for Bahia samples that were submitted into them. So yeah, we're, the, the average there was 8.2% crude protein, uh, which is certainly okay. And that TDN was 50.2. Uh, so that TDN starts getting to be uh, on the lower side of where we'd like to see it in terms of what we would call a good quality hay. So that, uh, and we'll call that number one when we get into this, a few slides after that. Our forage program uh, that we'll call number two, that was a, a little program we put off in here in, the, in kind of the Florida Paris's region of, of the Southeast region here. And Kenny Sharp kind of organized that and there were several of us agents involved. And so we had a program where we'd go out and uh, could minimize the cost of uh, those, those forage tests. And then, you know, did a little program like this talking about uh, what sort of supplementation would uh, be needed and, and talked a little bit about body condition score and all that sort of stuff to go along with it. But it allowed us to go out and pull from uh, some hay samples from some guys that normally just wouldn't turn in samples. Uh, and so it gave a pretty good representation of what we're dealing with you know, kind of as a, as a cow-calf producer here in this part of the state. And so those crude protein values came back and this was for the Bahia grass. I think there were 50 or so samples of Bahia grass out of the 64 that were turned in, a couple of Bermuda and a couple of silage. So I just pulled out the Bahia grass because that's primarily what we deal with here. So we're looking at a crude protein of 7.28%. So they're getting a little bit lower there. And then that TDN starts dropping even more and that was 48.32%. So just kind of think about what the nutritional requirements of, of a cow would be, and, and you can pull these numbers from, uh, I got these from the NRC book there. Uh, I was probably pulling from a little bit of older of a data set uh, for these. There, there's probably a little bit more updated numbers that, that show a little bit higher requirement than what I have down here, but I'm not a nutrition. This is just kind of an informational door to, sort of deal to kind of give you just kind of a broad spectrum look at, at, at maybe where we need to be in terms of uh, 
in terms of these requirements in the first place. So a 1200 pound cow, uh, you can see her percent TDN uh, needs to be somewhere in that last third of pregnant or dry in the middle third of pregnancy at 48, close to 49%. Uh, looking back at those samples, uh, we, we hit that. Our crude protein percentage doesn't mean need to be super high at uh, close to 7%. So you can kind of see we hit that as we get into that, that last third of pregnancy. Uh, that calf starting to grow there and and so and uh, her requirements kind of get ready for uh, calving are starting to increase so those those numbers are going to increase and then uh, we've got them for numbers uh, for after three to four months after they calve there and you can see that those increase significantly because we've got pretty good demands on her trying to milk uh, along with maintaining her body weight so we can keep her in good shape to get rebred so like we talked about the NDF, uh, those typically get to be pretty high with some of these lower TDN values. And, and so these uh, where where a cow is at in terms of her, her stage of production, their their bot their intake based on their the percent of their body weight is, is going to fluctuate. So it's going to be lower uh, there when she's dry in the middle third of big, uh, pregnancy. It's going to increase as we go into that last third and be you know the highest where where she's you know, that two to four months after calving sort of deal. So, you know, just in terms of crude numbers throwing out there, if we calculated she consumed 2% of her body weight of that hay, that's an unrealistic intake, but kind of give you the numbers there. You can see uh, we're good in terms of her being dry in that middle third, not needing to supplement there. Uh, and that, that forage number one there from those samples from the station, you can see that crude protein we meet in, in that particular scenario, uh, but we need to supplement on TDN uh, and we need to supplement for both uh, once we get into that uh, after she's calved. Uh, and that same sort of scenario um, you can see uh, as we get into uh, the, the, the data set for forage number two, um, but uh, we, we with those lower crude protein and lower TDN values, you can see those numbers get bigger in terms of what we're going to have to supplement later on. A more realistic intake is that she would consume somewhere around 1.8% of her body weight just based on what that NDF uh, number is going to be that's going to limit our intake. And so you can see that the numbers are going to look extremely similar to what they did in forage number uh, or at the 2% uh, consumption rate, uh, but you can see when we have to supplement, we're going to have to supplement more at this particular point uh, just because she's not going to be consuming as much. So we drop from 24 pounds of consumption of dry matter intake uh, down to 21.6. And so that's where those numbers start uh, getting reduced down. So just to kind of give you a rough idea about how much of what we would need, and, and uh, we've got some, some costs associated with that, uh, for, for forage number one and forage number two in um, that dry cow in that last third of pregnancy, you know, that middle third we didn't need to supplement. So um, just to give you an idea of, of how much we would need to be supplemented of, of each of these different commodities. We've got a big, pretty big co-op here in, in this portion of the state a lot of the guys do business with uh, called Saturday and got some prices on on just some uh, just some some of the more common things that we got uh, that they would use in a feed ration and I know that they've got on hand. Um, and, and calculated out the cost. Now, this was as of Saturday morning when I called and they said, well, we're going to change. We're actually in the process to change the prices. So if you called them and tried to get the same price earlier this week, it, it would be a little bit different. Uh, but you can see uh, the thing I really like you to look at is in all of these cases, it's going to take more of this particular product to supplement for TDN in, in a lot of cases. Uh, so we need to, you know, just thinking about where we're at in terms of our energy value. Typically, we're going to have to associate with 
with the, the vast majority of the hay that, that I'm going to see across our, our portion of our region, uh, we're going to need to address that in energy value uh, as much or more than what we do that crude protein. So in this sort of scenario, uh, you can see that, that we're down uh, TDM being the, the biggest draw we need to address. Um, and so we, we think about our higher energy sort of feedstuffs being the cheapest here with, uh, you know, soy hull pellets and our cracked corn. We think of those uh, as a higher energy and, and lower protein sort of commodities uh, compared to the other ones that would be more of a protein type supplement. And then as we look for those uh, those needs and see where we're at for those cows that have calved and, and in the, you know, in the middle part of their, their milk cycle, um, once again, those requirements go up, but our crude protein requirement went up pretty significantly here. So where those those just energy supplements were a pretty good option on the, on, on the other uh, stage of production as we get into here, because we've got a higher protein requirement, we've got to beat, you know, they're not going to equal out and, and be as cheap a, of a commodity as what our protein supplements are. So, uh, you know, in this sort of deal here, you can look down something like a corn gluten meal or a DDG. And, and a lot of guys here will will do either a combination of corn gluten and soy whole pellets or, or the DDG and soy whole pellets and, and run that as a supplement. But uh, you can see, uh, you know, kind of the, the cost associated because we got a, you know, a high quality that's not not super, super high. Uh, we're going to have to to step up and, and meet those demands. Now, as we increase the, these supplements and, and we're going to introduce a little bit more protein, there is going to be some, some increase in terms of dry matter intake. Don't have all that calculated in. This is just kind of a broad picture view of what we look at, need to look at in terms of meeting those demands. There would be a little bit of fluctuation as we introduce a little bit of protein. They're going to consume more of that hay. Um, it, will they get to the level of consuming enough to still meet all their energy demands? I don't necessarily have the answer for that. So just kind of the, the take home deal here is is input costs are, are very high. Um, and once again, I think it's it's very valuable to the more numbers we have to look at to, to kind of do some figuring, whether it be soil test on fertilizer rates or whether it be uh, hay, doing hay samples and hay tests to figure out what our nutritional value is. Certainly, certainly think it's worth your time and, and worth the money to have those numbers so you can uh, so you can pencil everything out. Uh, I really think it, it does, goes a long way to help you make better production uh, decisions because as those cows uh, start to start going backwards a little bit, it takes more effort to get them turned back right. So if we know what we're dealing with on the front end can supplement as needed, we can kind of keep those in good shape. Uh, we'll be in, in better shape going into uh, hopefully getting on to ryegrass at some point and then uh, them costs being extremely high. If you can find uh, the commodity out there that's close to you, then it's a very cost-effective alternative. Uh, pencil that out and see how much you'll have to need. So, Dr. Edwards, that kind of wraps me up there. Thank you, sir. Um, so, if y'all have questions, those of you that are live with us now, if you have questions for Bobby, um, you can put those in the q and I've also put a survey link there as well. Um, if you're listening in or if you prefer to text me questions, again, my number is 512-818-5476. I am going to try to take over the screen, maybe. Put this up. So hopefully you're seeing um, a slide with the survey link. So there's a couple ways to do this. Um, we do ask that you please take it's three minutes tops um, to take this survey. There's a couple ways you can do it. Um, there is the link, again, if you're viewing this live, it's in the Q&A box. If you're watching the recording or listening to it through podcast form, I'll have that link in the video and podcast descriptions. 
Um, those of you that want to use the QR code, you can just use the camera on your phone to do the QR code. A tiny little banner will pop up and click on that and it'll go straight to the survey for you there. Bobby, I'm not seeing any questions. I am going to give them just a few minutes, but I, I want to say there were several things that you mentioned that I really appreciated and wanted to emphasize for them, uh, if you don't mind. So one, I appreciate you doing body weight instead of animal units, because I know that's a question that, uh, as you mentioned, our extension agents and specialists get that all the time. Uh, if I have a cow-calf pair, or I have calves of whatever age it may be. Well, there's a lot of variation in weight there, and that is going to impact your stocking rate. So um, if you're not sure what your animals weigh, uh, this also brings me to our ne my next point, and that's that we're here to help. Um, so whether it's the forage sampling, hay sampling, um, double checking your calculations for supplementation, nutrient requirements, any of those things that Bobby mentioned this morning, uh, reach out to your local parish extension office and they will get you in contact with the right agent, the right specialist to be able to help you there. As he said multiple times, and I know we've been emphasizing this too, but I think we can still continue to do so, um, costs are constantly changing, constantly. So put pen to paper, calculate costs. You can calculate costs per nutrient of what you're missing there. Um, don't wait to the last minute. Try to plan ahead. Know, as he mentioned, the co-op and what they typically have in stock there. So wherever you are throughout the state, uh, reach out to your local co-op, reach out to your local extension agent and ask them what supplements are, are readily available or what commodities are readily available. Um, and just kind of have that in the back of your mind to know this is probably, you know, these are some of my options for supplementation if it gets to that. Um, the unrealistic versus realistic intake slides, um, I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> I think we need to, I'm going to steal those and probably put those in some of my uh, presentations if you don't mind, because I, that was something I emphasized when I taught feeds and feeding at the college level. And um, we can definitely make, we can definitely set out things that will meet their nutrient requirements, but that does not mean that they will always eat them or consume enough of them. So I really, really appreciated that there. I do not see any questions still at this time. So um, with that, Bobby, thank you again so much for doing this. I hope, uh, I know you mentioned this was your first one to do for us, and I hope you'll do more in the future. For those of you listening in, um, if you want to go back and reference this, it is recorded. I will get it online, hopefully within the next week. Sometimes it takes me a couple of weeks to get, get that edited. Um, it'll go to lsuagcenter.com slash beefbrunch. It'll also be on our LSU Ag Center dash livestock channel on YouTube. And then if you search Beef Brunch Educational Series on any of your favorite podcasts, it'll be there as well. If you have any questions on the Beef Brunch Series, um, I'll put my contact information in the video and podcast descriptions and you can reach out to me there. Um, if you're watching the recording, um, if Bobby doesn't mind, you can just send me an email and I can forward it to him. Um, oh, we did get one question in. Um, so can you discuss a bit more on collecting hay samples and how to get the best sample? Yeah, that, that's uh, not, a, not a problem at all. So it depends on, on how in depth you wanna be. Uh, most folks are are 
realistically, if I go out and pull a sample, if I can get those guys to stay with me long enough to pull 10 bales out of that particular lot, we're, we're in pretty good shape. They, they get impatient. They think if we pull after a couple, we're good. But uh, you're just trying to, to get as good of a representative sample of that particular lot as you can. And so to do that, uh, you're going to need to really need access to a core sampler. And so that thing is, uh, you know, on, on ours, uh, you know, we, we hook it to the end of a drill and we can drill in a couple two and a half feet uh, to, to get into the, the core of, of a round belt. So we're, 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 we're going to have different values based on what their exposure is to the environment to, from the outside to the inside. So you want to get a good representation because that's going to vary a little bit as, as that hay sitting out there. So, uh, you know, that core sampler pulling in, if you can, if you can get 10 samples out of, of that particular lot, mix that up in a bagging and, and send it either to our lab there on campus or there for a while our, our lab wasn't up and running and so we, we've got other labs that, uh, that that we've sent off to that have a, a good relationship well uh, with, with as well but uh, if you don't have a probe contact uh, one of your, your regional livestock folks they probably got access to one um, people on my end of the state uh, just give me a shout and i'm happy to come help pull them Thank you. Um, if y'all have any follow ups to that or any additional questions, you can go ahead and get them posted. Um, Bobby, is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out for today? No, I'm all good, Dr. Edwards. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, sir. Thank you. We really enjoyed it. Um, thank you all for joining us. And again, if you have any questions, if you're watching the recording of this, my contact information um, will be in the video and podcast descriptions. Just get those to me and I'll get those forwarded over to Bobby. Thank you all again, and we'll be with you all next month.